Uh, the kids will be uh, singing, uh, helping us with a couple songs, both on Palm Sunday and on Easter Sunday. So if you have a kid going into kids' choir, uh, make sure you mark that on your calendar. On Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, they'll be singing a song each week that they're practicing on these Sunday nights. All right. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 45. And if not, that's okay. Just You can find this printed in the bulletin. We're, we're going to read an assortment of verses from chapters 45 and 46. Um, we're going to skip over some, though, because in the middle of 46, there's a, one of those genealogies. And it's got significance. I don't want to imply that it doesn't, but uh, you can go read that on your own and glean the significance from it. I, I want to focus on a few other things tonight. So let's start in verse 16 of chapter 45, and we'll uh, begin reading there. Uh, When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. I wonder why he said that. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Isn't that sweet? Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And then we're going to skip some genealogy and go to verse 26. 
All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers in my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Amen. God's word. So, what we've been looking at the past several weeks is the way that God is able to bring reconciliation between people. Um, you've got, you had very broken relationships, everybody will agree with that, between Joseph and all of his brothers and even Jacob himself, who was sideways with the boys because they had given away his favorite son. And yet God was working behind the scenes and Joseph had become willing to receive them with kindness and God had been working in all the other brothers' hearts as well to, to make them willing to do several things. They apologized. They were willing to show and prove that they were now trustworthy again. And then they proved that by acting in certain ways that, that Joseph was asking them to act. And now, finally, after all of them have been reconciled, one thing left is to be done. Go and get dad. Get Jacob. Bring him to Egypt. And let Joseph and Pharaoh settle the family in Egypt so that instead of having to go back and forth to get grain, they can just have a constant supply so that the family can prosper rather than not prosper. And so what you have here is the end of a long string of stories going all the way back to the beginning of the Jacob story where the people of God go from famine to fortune. Famine to fortune. It is a total restoration. Total restoration. Um, have you ever been to an old car show before? Most people have. Some of you probably have participated in an old car show. When I was a kid, from time to time, we'd go on the weekends over to Old Town, which is a place in Orlando. Have you ever been to Old Town? And uh, it used to be, I think it was Friday nights, maybe it was Saturday, they would have the old car show. And we would sometimes go with a friend and drive over in his old car to be a part of the little parade and show, and then we would get to ride some of the rides and... Uh, I always liked going around from car to car, even though I didn't really have much interest in cars as a kid. I still liked seeing what they had done with them all and listening to the people who worked on them talk because they would always go through all the list of things that it took, you know, how much money it took, what I did with this, how I figured that problem out. And it, it just endless things uh, that reminded me, um, one, number one, I'm probably never going to do that. <laughs> but number two, what an amazing thing when people do. Uh, you take something that used to be glorious, it became very un unglorious, and now you 
put tons of work and tons of investment in and you make it glorious again. And maybe even sometimes more glorious than it was before, actually. A, a restored old car can be better in a number of ways than it was when it was originally made. And, and if you think about that process, you've got a little bit of what we're talking about. The people of Israel, the, the family, started gloriously with Abraham. Isaac, it was still okay. It ran all the way down with Jacob because Jacob made a lot of bad decisions. He had to leave the promised land. He married multiple people. He had kids that he clearly favored one over the other. The family fell apart. And yet, even, even almost without Jacob's effort, God has done all these things to restore the family to an even better condition than it had before. By the end of chapter 46, this family has a fortune in Egypt. They have everything they need, land, space for their sheep, a constant supply of food in a time of famine, room to grow, so that this little 70-person clan can one day become a nation that God will redeem and bring back to the promised land about 400-something years later. And so tonight we want to look at how God restores things. How God restores things. Uh, salvation in Christ is a restoration project. It's not merely reconciliation. There's a restoration that comes after the reconciliation. And so if you look at your bulletin, I want to show you three things from this story about that. Uh, and, and all of them have to do with Jacob, because Jacob is back in the spotlight here. And so when I say the father three times in the outline, I'm talking about Jacob. First, there's a father's heart, which shows us why we need God's restoration. Then we see a father's God, which shows us how God leads us towards restoration. And then finally, we see a father's joy. What difference hoping in God's restoration might make. So let's look together. First of all, at the Father's heart. This is in chapter 45, verses 16 through 28. Now, tell me this. Give me some words to describe Jacob's state of mind and heart at the beginning of this story. Before he knows that his brothers have found Joseph. Give me some words. Jacob's mind and heart, his mind frame. Okay, why do you say that, Clark? That's right. And another one. And Simeon as well, because Simeon, remember, is locked up in jail. So, yeah, you're right. I think that's a good way to put it. He's an old man, he's kind of coasting. He was coasting so easily that, remember the first time they went to get grain and came back, they finished the, all the grain? And they couldn't decide what to do next. And Joseph, I mean, Jacob just kind of sat there in indecision during that whole time. They were eating that big load of grain they got. I mean, I don't know how long that would have been, maybe a year. And finally, you know, he kind of gets around to making the decision. So clearly he's a man who's got a little aimlessness going on. What else? Despair, yeah. Exactly. Not a whole lot of hope, right? At least not in circumstances. Uh, Jacob has learned to hope in God, but in terms of how things are right here and now, uh, I'm not really sure that he imagines any good happening for the rest of his life. In fact, the phrase he used was, I'm going to go down with my gray hair to Sheol. Um, and by Sheol, he doesn't mean hell, I don't think, like what we would call hell. I think he just means the graveyard. 
I'm going to go to the graveyard with gray hair, and that's about all that's going to happen. I've got one thing left to do in my life, and that's to die. Is that a very positive outlook? No. I mean, no matter how old you are, you hope you've got a little bit more than that, right? Just one thing left. All I've got to do is die. What else? Emptiness, yeah, exactly right. He had never been able to fill the void that he lost with, with Joseph. Benjamin had partially filled it, and now that was slipping away. You're exactly right, emptiness. Now, now, now I want you to think about that, and then look at verse 16, and just scan down 16 through 24. What is God doing while Jacob is sitting there aimless and empty and despairing what all is God doing absolutely and taking care of him in some amazing ways what's the first amazing thing that happens Pharaoh is Pharaoh hears that Joseph has found his brothers and Pharaoh is over the moon about it and starts promising the world to Joseph, basically saying, Joseph, here's a blank check. Go and get your brothers, and whatever you need, I'll give it to you. And when you get your brothers and your dad and come back, I'll give them whatever they need until the end. What are the odds of that happening? You know, uh, Pharaoh, you know, he might have been a nice guy, but... Um, Likelihood, no, he wasn't doing this all the time. The likelihood is he was a ruler just like every other ruler in the ancient Near East, pretty, pretty cold towards people in need, pretty self-centered. And yet here, something had moved his heart. And when he hears of Joseph's joy, he gets joy. And he starts to put things in motion to restore this family where, where they clearly could not restore themselves. Then what happens? Another amazing thing. They got the best. So not only did they get a bunch of stuff, right? The, uh, Pharaoh didn't send them to the outlet store to go get the, you know, the bad runs of everything. He, it says he gave them the best of Egypt, verse 23, the good things. And the promise was when you get back, you're going to get the best of all the land of Egypt. That's what I'm going to give you. Uh, several times it mentions wagons. And as you're reading that, you think, why, why, did this, why does the writer care so much about the wagons? Because it's, I think it was five times that I counted, he mentions the wagons, the wagons, the wagons, the wagons. What's the big deal about wagons? Lots of stuff. A lot of stuff. And also, these were the things that really important people traveled in. The, the wagons were for traveling, for important people. So ordinary people like us, that you had to ride on the back of the animal. Um, important people were drawn by the animals in a wagon sometimes it was even a covered wagon right uh, and so you were riding in style um, pharaoh sent his rolls royce fleet to pick them up this is amazing not only that but you have joseph getting in on the action joseph uh, is told by pharaoh here's what you're to do and joseph executes on it to the t all the way until he's able to say in verse 24 something that Pharaoh didn't tell him to do, but he adds it in for good measure. When his brothers departed, he said, do not quarrel on the way. That's just a little added bonus on top of all the good stuff that Joseph gave them through the 
largesse of Pharaoh. Now, what's the significance of that? Don't quarrel on the way. Yeah, he, he knows who they are. And what's in Joseph's heart for them? What does he want the most for them? Is it just that they would have sweet wagons, awesome donkeys, and pre premium grain? Peace. Harmony. Remember, he's gone through this whole process of reconciliation. He wants them to be in harmony even when they're not in his presence. So that when they get to their dad, they're in a good mood. So that their dad's in a good mood. So that when they're coming back, they're all in a good mood. So that when they get back, they can have a celebration rather than some kind of awkward, you know, knock, knock out, down, drag out type of affair that they've been used to as a family. Uh, this is kind of what has routinely happened over and over. God is clearly moving everybody in this situation. He moves Pharaoh. He moves Joseph. He moves all the various players that have to do with these provisions. I mean, all the people that had to grow the grain and all the people that had to raise the donkeys and all the rest, all the people that had to build the wagons. God has been moving all this behind the scenes as Jacob sits in Canaan in despair. All for Jacob's sake. All for the, the sake of Jacob seeing his dream. Better yet, Jacob seeing God's promise come to fulfillment. How kind is God? How good is God to work even when we don't know that he's working? Or we don't think he's working? Even when we don't feel like he's working, which sometimes is the most critical thing, right? Sometimes our feelings are very powerful. And when we feel despairing, we automatically conclude, well, it must be despairing. When we feel angry, oh, well, things must really be that bad. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes our feelings have gotten the best of us. And really, behind the scenes, there's the God who knows how to restore things. Just like those men and women that I would go around and hear from at Old Town. They knew how the cars were designed. They knew them in and out. They had read the books. They had studied them. And they had done, most of all, practice. They figured it out. And so they knew how to bring something to life again. God knew the human soul. God knew family. God knew people. And God is able and has been at work doing all the little things that it takes to take a person and to take a family and make them whole again. And it wasn't because Jacob had some great scheme to do it. And it wasn't even because Joseph had a great scheme to do it. It's because God had a plan that he was executing. I don't know about you, but that, that's comforting to me. I don't know what area of your life you believe restoration is not possible. Do you have an area where you think that? That'll never get restored. That part of my life, over. I'm sure you've got an area like that. It isn't necessarily true. In the hands of God, it's definitely not true. And maybe even in ways you don't even know, God's already been at work. This reminds me a little bit of that scene in another book of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. Daniel, too, was in a foreign land, and he was, he was second in command to the ruler, like Joseph. And remember, um, Daniel was in trouble because he was caught praying when he wasn't supposed to, and they were, threw him in the lion's den and all that. Uh, and Daniel was praying, 
And what he was praying for was relief from these unjust laws that were causing him and other people who were worshiping God to be punished. And uh, in a dream one night, an angel appeared to Daniel. Do you remember this? And the angel, this is the angel Michael, actually gives his name. And the, and the angel says, Daniel, don't be afraid. From the moment you prayed, God sent his help. And Daniel kind of stops and is like, okay, well, I prayed a long time ago. I started praying about this. It was like, it was like a year and a half. And the angel says, nope, the moment you started praying, we left. We got caught up on the way. Literally, they say that. We got caught up by evil forces on the way. We had to take care of them. But we've been on the way since you prayed. You didn't know it. You didn't sense it. You didn't feel it. But we were going after you to help you. This reminds me of that. God has been on the way for Jacob. God has been on the way for his family. Yes, it's a mess. Total wreck. But God has been on the way. And here... That wreck and that mess is going to become something that actually resembles beauty again. Amazing. Nothing is beyond God's ability to restore. All right, secondly, I want you to see the Father's God. Speaking of God, uh, Israel, who's the other name of Jacob, which, by the way, it's really interesting in this whole story to notice how much he goes back and forth between calling him Jacob and calling him Israel. And um, I, I don't have time to go down a rabbit trail here, but notice there's a reason, I think, why sometimes he calls him Jacob, sometimes he calls him Israel. Uh, but in, verse, in chapter 46, verse 1, he transitions from calling him Jacob to calling him Israel. Israel took his journey with all that he had and came near Beersheba. Now, anybody know their Israel geography? Mike might a little bit. I know, I've been to Israel with Mike. Where is Beersheba, Mike? It is. Yeah, think about a map. Israel is kind of, kind of sort of shaped like a diamond. Um, Beersheba is down near the bottom. It's almost the southernmost point. Uh, we've been down there. Uh, after Beersheba, even today, it's pretty much desert from there to Egypt. It's just kind of nothing. Uh, Beersheba is sort of the end of civilization. Uh, Beersheba is also important to Israel, to Jacob, because his grandfather Abraham went there. Uh, one of the first places he went to set up an altar to God. We, we read about that in chapter 15. Uh, it was actually the place where God had cut the covenant between him and Abraham. And so when Israel gets there, there's two things going on. Number one, he's about to step further south than he's ever stepped before. He's about to step outside of the boundaries of the promised land. And yet, as he's about to step over that line, he's also remembering this is where granddad got it all started with God. This is a holy place. This is an awesome moment. It reminds me a little bit of um, in the Fellowship of the Ring. That's the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Samwise Gamgee and Frodo are headed out of the Shire. And in the farmer's field, Samwise stops all of a sudden and he says... If I take one more step, I've gone farther than I've ever gone away from home. One more step and I'm out of the shire. One more step and there's no turning back. That's a little bit, I think, what Jacob was thinking. After all, think about this. Did Jacob ever willingly leave the promised land? 
Was Jacob an adventurer or was he a homebody? Homebody. In fact, they called him an indoorsman. He liked the indoors. The only reason he ever left the promised land before is he had to because he made his brother so mad and his dad so mad that he had to run for his life. And so he went north, not south, north to Padan Aram where he had a terrible time with Laban. This is why we're in this mess because of all that. And when he finally came back into the land, remember what that was like? It was almost like a personal conversion of Jacob when he entered back over into the promised land. He loves that place. Those are the friendly confines. He does not want to leave. And here he's about to leave because apparently God told him to. And yet we got to imagine he's having hesitations. His heart has been broken way too many times. Think about all the times Jacob's heart has been broken and disappointed. In fact, it told us in chapter 45, verse 47, when he heard the word about Jacob, his heart just went numb. And he had a hard time believing it. And so here he is about to leave the promised land again. Oh no, what's going to happen this time? And God comes and does something marvelous. He appears to Israel in a vision in the night. And he reassures Israel of his presence. I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why? Why shouldn't he be afraid? He's never been to Egypt. Because I myself will go with you. God says, I myself will go with you, and I also will bring you up again. Where, while you're there, I will make you into a great nation. And oh, by the way, Joseph's hand will close your eyes. All right, now I know we've been trying to get into Jacob's mindset, and that's always dangerous to speculate, but... Now, how would you describe what Jacob feels? Yeah, courage, confidence. I mean, in fact, right when he woke up, look at verse 5. Right when he woke up from this vision, what does it say he did? He set out. He set out. He kept going. I'm sure he stopped there to spend the night because he was afraid to take another step. And yet God met him in the night and the next thing he did is he got up and he set out. He put all the people in order, the little ones, the wives, the wagons, all the things that he had and he went in a beeline down to Egypt because he believed what God had told him. God had come to reassure Jacob. Let me ask you this. How often in your life do you need God's reassurance? Do sometimes you fall into the trap of thinking that you don't need it? Do sometimes you fall into the other trap of thinking God ain't given it? I mean, that may be the more common, but we, we can go both ways, right? Sometimes we can barrel through life as if we can get it on our own and doesn't, we don't really need God. We can live that way. More often than not, 
we live as if we need him, but I'm not sure that he's forthcoming. I'm not sure that he's, he's going to show up. And yet, what this scripture attests to is not only that we need, uh, continually need the reassurance of God, but God is continually there to give it. We talked about that this morning uh, in the Lord's Supper. That, that's the whole point of the Lord's Supper is, is actually a reassurance. It's a sealing sacrament, meaning it reassures those who come to it in faith. It gives you confidence that God is in fact really with you and that God has in fact really given his son for you and that you are in fact in his family now. And he's never going to kick you out. That's what the Lord's Supper is for. We also know that in other ways God shows up and reassures us. Providential ways. Um, have you ever had God do something for you you didn't expect? Bless you in a way you, you didn't imagine and then it just gave your heart so much confidence and no, you might not have had a voice from heaven saying, this is what I'm doing. But you knew it from the way God ordered your steps. You knew it, that God was looking out for you. And that God had your back. What a reassurance. Don't we need that all the time? Why do we need that all the time? Prone to wonder. Good. What else? We can't do it on our own, right? If we're going with this analogy, our lives are these broken down cars that need to be restored. We are not the restorers. We're not. Yes, God uses us. Don't get me wrong. He uses us to do things in our lives and in the lives of others too. And God wants us to be fruitful in helping other people. But at the end of the day, we are not the restorers. Only he is. Only he knows how to do it. He made us. He knows how to do it. And therefore, we need constant reassurance that he's there and that he is at work. Or else we might be tempted either to think we've got to do it on our own or to think God's left me. God's forgotten me. God doesn't care. I'm just not good enough to merit God's help. Doesn't matter which category you tend to find yourself falling in, either in the despair side or in the self kind of cocky side. Doesn't really matter. Either way, you're missing it. Either way, you need to, to pay attention to God's reassuring work in your life. Whether it's at the Lord's table, whether it's through reading the scriptures, whether it's through worship, or whether it's just through your daily life. All the little ways every day that God meets you, if you'll open your eyes and pay attention, he's meeting you to provide. Sometimes it's in big ways. Sometimes it's in small ways. Sometimes it's the unexpected healing or the unexpected good diagnosis that you get that you didn't expect. That's a big thing. Some of you all got that recently. Praise the Lord. Sometimes it's the smallest thing that we just don't pay attention to because it is so small and it seems so every day. People in the Bible who knew God, who walked with God, didn't think that way. And I've noticed that for a long time as I've read about them. And I've always noticed the contrast with me and with us. Like I feel like in, in the modern day, we've so demystified everything. Everything has become very scientific, you know, to where we just don't see the wonder of the small thing. People in the Bible, when they, when they got a meal, 
People who were believers. I know there were unbelievers who didn't think this way. But the believers, when they got a meal, they thought, God did this. When the weather brightened, praise the Lord. When it rained, thank God. That's the kind of heart that I think is, is open to the reassuring ministry of God. Because God is always doing something to reassure us. It's just we might not, we might not be putting our antenna up to receive the signal. But he's sending out the waves all the time. And if, we, if he's not sending out any other wave in your life, you always know that when you come here, when you come to be with God's people and you come to, the, to the, hear the word and to the Lord's Supper, he will speak here. When you open your Bible in the morning, he will speak there. It's guaranteed. He promises. Just like when Jacob stopped where Abraham, his grandfather, had worshipped God in Beersheba, God showed up. Just like he promised. All right? That's the Father's God. Now, lastly, I want us to just look, and this is a very awesome scene at the end, the Father's joy. This is, cha- this is uh, chapter 46, verses 28 to 34. This is the actual meeting between Joseph and Jacob. Let's do a little timeline here, because maybe we've forgotten. How long has it been since Joseph and Jacob saw each other? It's okay if you have a guess that is close. Yeah, 20 to 25 years. That's exactly right. A couple decades. Long time. How long of that time has Jacob thought his son was dead? The whole time. Just about, I mean, actually the whole time. Because right when the brothers came back without Joseph, there they had that blood-stained coat. And so in Jacob's mind, his son was gone. He'd been grieving for 20 years over his son. He's heard that his son is still alive, but it's not until verse 28 and following that he actually sees him. I think we should read it again because it's beautiful. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph. Interesting, right? Why did he send Judah ahead of him to Joseph? Practical reason. Judah's younger. He's quicker. (laughs) Jacob's old. Well, what's, a, what's another reason, potentially, why he sent Judah ahead? Yeah. Right, he, he trusts Judah again. He trusts Judah. He's, he knows Judah's going Judah's to not only lead me there, but Judah's going to prepare the way. In fact, that's what he says, prepare the way before him, show the way before him into Joseph, uh, and prepare Joseph for the meeting. So he sends Judah ahead, and then it says, verse 29, Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. Goshen, by the way, is an area in the uh, east part of Egypt, on the other side of the Nile River. Uh, Joseph said, um, excuse me, I missed it. He presented himself to him and fell, fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Now, why does he say that? Now let me die. Closure, Closure, yeah. Uh, Does he literally mean, I have a death wish, I want to die right now? No, this is actually an ancient way of speaking. Uh, This is a quiz. Where else in the Bible does someone speak like this? It's a hard question. 
Nineveh? Yep, exactly. That's one place. Uh, who, who said it? The prophet? Jonah, yep. Jonah, he says, and, and actually it was a bad thing there, right? Because um, God had given grace to Nineveh. Jonah didn't like it, and so he said, all right, let me die here in the sun. Because not only have you saved the knucklehead Ninevites, but you also made my little shade plant wither. Very whiny prophet. Very whiny. Where else? When Jesus was a baby. Famous. Who said it? You remember his name? Simeon. I told you this are hard questions, right? These are deep cuts. But Simeon is an old man, not unlike Jacob, waiting in the temple for the arrival of the Messiah. He'd been waiting his whole life. When Mary brings baby Jesus to the temple to present him and dedicate him, which they were supposed to do at a certain age, he takes the child in his arms and he says, Now, let me die. For my eyes have seen, what? Your salvation. Talking to God, your salvation has been revealed to me. I can die now. Again, not a statement of a literal death wish. He's not saying he's depressed about that. He's, he's saying in a manner of speaking, I have seen everything I've needed to see in this world. All my hopes have been realized. God has come through for me in such a way that I am satisfied with his provision. That's what he means by let me die. Because I have looked on the fulfillment of God's promise. Now we understand why Simeon said that about Jesus. And we would hope that all of us when we see Jesus will similarly say the same thing. Because all of our hopes and dreams will be fulfilled in that moment. But why does Jacob say it about Joseph? Knew what was inevitable. His, de oh, his death, yeah, that's right. Yeah, true. But why is he so happy to see Joseph? Besides the obvious, it's his son. Right. Why? I'm digging for something here. Mm -hmm. That's right. There's something here that's just a father's... I mean, I mean, let's just stop for right now and just say, okay, any dad in this situation would be absolutely overwhelmed. And any mom would be overwhelmed with joy. I get that. Think of, it, think of deep spiritual reason why, maybe. Clint? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. E even on top of all the things, all the normal just joy that any parent would have, there was this particular man, this particular father had been promised God's blessing. Remember, all the families of the earth will be blessed through your seed. Why do you think it was that Jacob favored Joseph so much in the first place? That's what he thought. He had to have, right? Remember he thought Leah and all the kids that came from Leah weren't going to be it because he wasn't supposed to marry Leah anyway and he thought that was a complete, you know, he was ripped off. For right or wrong, that's what he thought. Rachel was the one God had for him in his mind. 
And so his firstborn from Rachel, that was the one. Now, he wasn't exactly right about that because many of the sons of Leah become great ones. In fact, one of them becomes the great-grandfather of Jesus, right? Judah. So he wasn't exactly right. But in his mind, he thought the promise of God is not dead anymore. I thought it was dead. I thought it was over. So Simeon's rejoicing in the temple overseeing Jesus is not all that different in terms of the faith required and the expression of faith that it was. It's not all that different from what Jacob is saying right here. Because when he looks in the eyes of his son, when he has his son weeping on his neck, it's as if the promises of God have been resurrected from the grave and he's back in the game. It's back on. It felt like a dead end for so many years. And Jacob thought, I tried with these other boys. I tried. They wore me out. They're a little bit better now, but they've worn me out. Benjamin, maybe, but then they went ahead and traded him out to the Egyptians too. It's over. When he saw Jacob, now let me die because my eyes have seen that you are alive. The covenant of God continues. The hope of the world is still there. Wow. All throughout the Joseph story, we've seen how Joseph is like a type of Christ. And by type, I mean it very technically. In the Old Testament, you have certain characters and certain events that are types, that they typify, they, they symbolize or foreshadow what Christ would later do. Now, they do that because God's the one ordering the events and writing the story. And so God is giving to his people little examples of what they're to hope for when Christ finally does arrive. And, and Joseph's life has been one after another example. I mean, after all, he was the, the son who was favored, and yet he was sold to the pit. He went all the way down into the depths and was raised all the way up to the right hand of the leader so that the whole world could be saved from hunger. I mean, this sounds a whole lot like Jesus, right? He died and was raised so that he could fill the world with the bread of life. Well, here's another way that Joseph is a type of Christ. When Jacob saw Joseph's life, he knew the promises of God were certain. Similarly, because of the birth and resurrection of Jesus, this is what a believer has in their heart. You don't see it physically, but in your heart, here's what you have by faith. You have the certainty given to you by God that Jesus Christ is God born in the flesh and that Jesus Christ really rose from the grave. And if you've got that, this story is telling you, you have an assurance, a guarantee, that every promise of God is yes and amen. Every promise in the Bible is going to be fulfilled. When you look upon Christ, you can die. A happy man, a happy woman, in a manner of speaking, you are satisfied. Because you need no further assurances. That's why the Lord's Supper, by the way, is so powerful as a reassurance. Why it's more powerful than just reading your circumstances and saying, Oh Lord, this meal, what a, what a great token. Even though that is a token, 
It's even better to have the Lord's Supper as a token because that supper from Jesus himself represents Jesus himself, which is the source of assurance that God will never let us down and none of his promises will ever fall to the ground empty. Yes and amen, Paul says. Every promise of God. Our God is good at restoring, amen? Amen.